Today on the Story Geeks podcast, 90s goth kids can rejoice. And I mean that in the most brooding way possible because we are talking about 1994's comic book classic, a cult classic, really, The Crow. Before we get into that, we've got a fascinating new sponsor, a participatory arts podcast. And at the end of the episode, I'll play a trailer and you should listen to it because it's a fascinating concept. It's called Signal. S-Y-G-N-Y-L, and it just launched. So if you find this concept interesting, go check it out. Signal subtly invites listeners into a hidden world that exists all around you. And here's where it gets really interesting. In each episode, a soothing voice will dare you to complete small collaborative acts in the real world. (laughs) Trippy, right? And super interesting. Through magical realism, the signal becomes a new vessel for ancient wisdom and a medicine for the troubles currently ailing our world. Will you choose to follow the instructions within? Visit signal.com, S-Y-G-N-Y-L.com. Check it out. And like I said, I'll play a clip for you at the end of this show. I'm Jay Shear, co-author of Death of a Bounty Hunter, which is now a semi-finalist in ScreenCraft's cinematic book competition, which is really exciting for us. And joining me today to get dark and gloomy and goth-like, Sandra Demas. What's up? Of course I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) Of course you have to be here. We said earlier this week in the Story Geeks Facebook group, we said Sandra has the most most goth cred of any of the Story Geeks co-hosts. So we have to have Sandra here. Have you had a good week? Is everything going well? Yeah. Just having fun. I got to rewatch The Crow, so that was awesome. <laughs> That's great, right? I know. It's awesome. It's cool, to, it's cool to revisit this classic. Oh, yeah. Also joining us today is Priscilla Hernandez. What's up, Priscilla? How are you? Yo, I'm just thinking, like, man, I'm totally not goth, but... Some of my good, <laughs> some of my good friends are. So I guess I'll use that card. Yes, yes, you, Sandra. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have a lot of goth friends. I swear. Um, and the third guest joining us today, a guest we've collaborated with so often, you might as well call her a co-host, Megan Salinas. How are you, Megan? Good. How are you guys? Hey, we're doing pretty good. So well. and we get to talk about the crow, so that's always fun. We're all we're all socially distant, but we get to hang out together regardless. So I'm excited about that. Um, any thoughts before we jump into these questions and I hand, I basically hand the podcast over to Sandra. Uh, kind of like Scylla, I have to say that I was not a goth kid either. When I was in high school, I was a wannabe emo kid. (laughs) (laughs) Your post goth emo. I I like that. I like that. (laughs) But like, it's one of those things where revisiting this movie, I was like, gosh, darn it. I wish I was a goth kid <laughs> growing up. This movie is so cool. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Um, so let's just get into it. 1994's R-rated goth romance slash revenge flick, The Crow. Sandra, take it away. Yeah, you know, you you kind of described it aptly. It was certainly a very goth, very occult-ish um, and it had a super 90s soundtrack. Um, it had The Cure, Stone Temple Pilots, Raging Against the Machine, Violent Femmes, Nine Inch Nails. I mean, pretty much everyone that you wanted to see in concert in the 90s. Um, and in many ways, it was far ahead of its time. So it made use of face replacement technology that prior to the Crow's release had only ever been used in Jurassic Park. Uh, but of course, they had to use it for Brandon Lee's character. Um, It was a box office success. It took the number one spot opening weekend 
and it gained even more success for those kids who probably couldn't see an R-rated film once it came out on VHS and, and DVD, which was kind of like barely around. Um, so it, it became even more successful once it was on video. And of course the comic book films were a rarity in the 90s. So it was something for comic book fans to kind of get their hands on. Um, so my first question, now that we have all that kind of backstory is do you think that it still stands the test of time and what hasn't aged well? Let's start, let's start with our guest, Megan, what do you think? Um, I do think it stands the test of time. I think it holds up remarkably well. There are, there are certain things that don't hold up well, like um, some of the uh, intro sweeping shots of like CGI cityscapes um, and some of the fire effects don't really hold up. Um, but as, and, and it's so funny for a film that is so quintessentially a 90s film like you watch this and you can absolutely tell the decade it came from for a film that is so quintessentially 90s i feel like because of the gothic aesthetic and this otherworldly atmosphere that the film creates it actually makes it feel oddly displaced from time kind of like burton's mm. batman films which yeah. those also also had a gothic aesthetic but because of like the 1940s aesthetic of it all they also feel displaced from time kind of like it follows where it's like oh, this yeah. is clearly taking place in a modern setting, but it feels displaced from reality. It's it's that fantastical. Yeah. Um, so I do think it holds up um, remarkably well, actually. Yeah, what do you think, Scylla? And I think it's it's helpful for, for viewers to know that you watched The Crow only recently for the very yes, first time, right? Yes, actually, yeah, I, I was gonna mention, I probably have just seen it, it was September slash October. And I, I definitely think it stands the test of time. And it could be because I was a 90s kid. So everything <laughs> to me during that period seems like, oh, yeah, this is still the same. Um, but I think it has timeless themes of, you know, wanting to seek justice in any means possible. And also, if you're just thinking about peak pandemic time, even September, October, there's a lot of themes, you know, about seeing injustice and mm -hmm. how do we deal with it? How do, how mm -hmm. do we address it? are seeing these people have control behind the scenes, even if it's a crime lord as opposed to big corporations, it still has stuff that, you know, if you've even watched it today, it's like, wow, this is very, this is very, you know, it's, it is displaced in time. It's like, you could watch it any time period and be like, wow, this is really good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that you have the perspective of having only seen it um, for the first time a few months ago so that you don't have the nostalgia really to go back and say, oh yeah, it, it kind of makes sense. What, what do you think, Jay? Well, here's what's crazy. I thought I had seen this film before and I started watching <laughs> it. I'm like, I've never seen this before. So I saw it just last week. But um, what's crazy about it is it became such a cultural phenomenon that like, I felt like I had seen it even as I was watching it. I'm like, I feel like I know this, but I've never seen this before. Um, I think it holds up brilliantly. I think what you guys have been saying thus far is really, really great. Um, there's something really fascinating to me about the goth genre. It is not true of every subgenre. And that is that there's a, there's a cult following who is also willing to buy tickets, which is not true of all. I mean, you can pick like all the Burton films. You can pick this film, like goth, uh, goth fan base will show up to purchase tickets, which is not true of every fan base out there. And I think that, um, one thing I'll say that kind of stands the test of time 
with this film, but with a lot of goth properties, is that goth has a distinct advantage relative to storytelling. And that's because it cares deeply about what you might consider taboo or difficult subjects, mm. primarily death, um, but also death mixed with occasionally anarchy, like in this film, or sexuality, which is also in this film. And so those are storytelling advantages because those things, we, the human the human race will always be concerned about those things. Despite people who want to escape from those things, there's still a subsegment of the population that wants to engage in stories about those types of things. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, movies like The Crow kind of provide a space for that to happen. And I think Megan's called it out like, but the special effects, you know, anything from the 90s is not going to hold up besides like Jurassic Park, which surprisingly holds up crazy well. Um, but I think there's also some acting choices here that are quintessentially 90s acting choices. But I think we'll look back at 2021 and be like, oh, those acting choices were from the 2020s, you know. Um, so I think that those kind of things evolve. But this film should pretty much stand the test of time, honestly. Like it's a it's a really good film. Yeah, you know, I, I agree. So I, as the um, elder geek, <laughs> <laughs> like I actually saw this movie in the theater. I don't know if it was opening weekend, but I saw it in the theater when it came out. And, um, I, you know, it, it's hard for me to say, to even represent goth, because even though like, I like black and all that stuff, there's, it, it, there's just kind of a depth to that whole culture that I don't know if I was ever even allowed um, by my Latina mom to <laughs> fully immerse in. But this certainly spoke to me and it still speaks to me. Um, and I think that what you said, Jay, about the themes that goth films have really the balls to kind of address these themes and to just go fully into them. Um, so we see grief and we see justice and revenge and death. And it is actually pretty graphic what we see in this film. Um, so in one regard, I think absolutely it has stood the test of time. And in another regard, I think what we do see in some of those scenes um, as far as like the assault and everything, I feel like we see less of that now um, or at least without, not without some significant warning. So I think that we are more attuned to certain types of violence um, that I think in the nineties was just like, Oh, there's violence. Oh yeah. A woman gets raped, well, you know, whatever. And, and it wasn't as, um, concerning content wise as we are now. Um, so I think in that regard, you can tell, oh yeah, this is a this is an older film because of how they treat that and how they kind of marinate in that with those flashbacks where um, I don't know if we needed all of that to just know the end result that she gets that she gets killed. Mm. Um, but you know what? Let's talk about um, some other stuff with regard to the film. So I touched on it briefly about the technology, the face technology. And the reason for that was because, of course, Brandon Lee's very, very tragic onset death. Um, and in fact, I was just kind of diving into some of the, the um, conspiracies and the rumors about this film. There were so many accidents and so many like weird things going on, such that people say, that the film is is cursed, you know, crew members getting injured and um, weird fires and all that stuff. Um, I'm wondering because this happened in a time when we didn't have social media, um, so we got kind of this gap between what happened and like people trying to decipher what happened with Brandon Lee. To it, it just kind of was more mysterious, I think, 
than it might have been had we had quick access to news and to information. So all these kind of rumors built. And I'm wondering, do you think, um, especially for those who are a little bit more aware of the film when it first came out, do you think that the behind the scenes tragedies kind of led to the film's success or would it have stood on its own? Let's start with you, Jay. Uh, so two things first, really quick. Uh, I want to give a shout out to Daryl who's watching and he says he saw the, the crow in the theater as well. Yes! So you're not alone. You're not alone, Sandra. Daryl, Hi, Daryl. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then also I gotta give a shout out to Tim. Tim is behind the scenes right now. He's running everything. So if you see stuff pop up on the screen or if he changes the view or anything, so special shout out to Tim, but okay. So back to this question. Um, do I think that the behind the scenes tragedies led to the film's success or would it have stood on its own? Okay. I'm going to answer this from a jaded uh, creator's standpoint. And when I say that, what I mean is, is that I think that one of the things I've learned as an independent creator is that very, um, very few creative works actually stand on their own from a monetary standpoint. So this is, th go watch YouTube videos of, people who are amazing singers and they'll have like a few followers on their, their YouTube channel, right? Like um, this happens all the time to creators. So I think what happens is it's incredibly difficult for artists to reach the mainstream. Um, quality plays a role in that, but not nearly as much as people think. Audiences tend to think, well, all of the best things will be seen by lots of people. And that actually is not really true in my experience. And the more the more we get advanced with how we can reach out to people. Now, a lot of small creators are reaching people through things like YouTube because they can build their own audience base, which I think is cool. But but so if, if we're asking the question of, do I think this film would have been successful? Maybe, because I think the goth audience would have shown up for it. But this film definitely went mainstream, right? Like just even by Daryl saying he saw it in the theater, like Daryl's not the audience for this necessarily. Like He's a comic <laughs> book fan. But he probably doesn't fit into that group. He also, he also let us know in the comments. But um, but my thought process is is that one of the things that um, producers a lot of times will use is that they'll use whether it's outrage, which is very very popular to use as a marketing tactic in um, the modern day, or whether they'll use behind the scenes or controversial things to get people to talk about the film. Um, that word of mouth is really impactful to hitting the mainstream. So you can hit your you can hit your target audience, but for you to hit the mainstream is a lot more difficult. And so I don't think it would have been as iconic or as cult classic as it is today if some of those things had not happened and been publicized. That's kind of my my take on it. Yeah, let's hear from you, Megan. Uh, I think that had there been no tragedy surrounding the film, I do think that the film would have found its audience. Um, mm -hmm. I, I definitely think bare minimum, it would have made its budget back for sure. Um, but the the fact of the matter is, is that you can't divorce this film from the mm. tragedy surrounding it. You just can't. And this is the point where I probably should have chimed in a little earlier to admit that I actually actively avoided this movie for a long time because of that tragedy. Mm. I remember when I was like an adolescent, like 12 or something like that, we were scrolling through uh, TV channels on, you know, TV guide and the crow came up and I, my parents started talking about it and they were like, Oh, that was the movie, you know, where Brandon Lee, the star of the film died on set. And I was like, what? Um, and it was just 
so sad to me that any time I saw it on TV, I actually actively avoided it because I was just like, that's just so damn tragic. It made me so sad. And so I actually also didn't come to this movie until I was an adult. Um, and I'm glad I, I'm really glad I did take the time to watch it because it is a fantastic film. And that's why I do think the film would have found its audience um, because it at, at its core, it's a very relatable story, as we said, you know, dealing with universal themes and this fantastical um, otherworldly atmosphere. There are like the film's merits, I think, would have allowed it to find its audience. The thing that will forever make the crow live in infamy, though, is the fact that it was Brandon Lee's last film. This and from now on, whenever people look back on this film, much like. Uh, the career of like Selena, um, you know, people think of like, oh, what could have been for this mm -hmm. for this person who was displaying an incredible amount of talent and passion um, for the thing that they were doing here. And I think that's one of the reasons why critics were so kind to it um, when the film came out, because. Uh, you know, it is a little light on story and some critics pointed that out, but they pointed out that the atmosphere um, was great and that Brandon was great mm. and um, that Brandon would have had a promising career had this not been his final film. Um, that being said, um, I, I don't know if uh, history would have looked, you know, as kindly on it as it does right now. Um, because again, of that like tragedy of like, oh, it, it kind of like we we look back on Heath Ledger, you know, when the, the dark and shortly after the, you know, he passed away before the Dark Knight came out, um, you know, we all always wonder what could have been. Um, but actually, if uh, you guys, you mentioned Sandra that um, a lot of people think this movie is cursed because of all of the various incidences that mm. went on behind the scenes. Um, there's actually a really great series on Shudder that talks about cursed films. It's called Cursed Films. There's one season of it, and they do an entire episode on The Crow. And it was actually that episode um, that encouraged that that got me to finally sit down and watch this movie. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it's it goes into the nitty gritty and of like kind of demystifying cursed films. Um, so I highly recommend checking it out because the movie's not cursed. It's just a tragedy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. What do you think, Scylla? I think to echo what Jay and Megan have said, I it is a great story, but I think we have a culture and there's always been this kind of culture that attaches to movies are situations that are very tragic like you can't look away type of mm -hmm. like you know situations that it it still holds up but at the same time i think people become even more interested in it because of everything associated with it um, yeah. and you know including the passing of brandon lee and how you know his life is cut short in a sense of like his father bruce lee where they mm -hmm. both did not you know live that long if you think about it and Brandon Lee just being like, this was like his star role. Cause before that, mm -hmm. I think there was rapid fire and a few other movies, but besides that, you know, that was it. Yeah. So I think that's what people attach to as well. Of like just everything associated with it or, you know, be mystified by it. Like, 
oh man, like all of this going on and what happened here. And like, or even people looking really detailed into the film to the point of like, oh, can I tell the face? Like when they place yeah. the face on like the, the set double to, you know, fit in for Brandon Lee. So I, I, I think it's, I think story-wise it stands on his own, but I think with that culture of just being interested in things and tragedies, that's what brings it over the top. Yeah. I, I think if, if any genre is going to encourage people to really gravitate toward it and, and hold it dear to their heart, um, having lost the main star, I think it would be a goth film, you know, mm -hmm. anything goth related. Um, and you brought up a good point, Phila, about this being kind of like Brandon Lee's first big film. So he wasn't really in, in anything big prior to this role. And all we can do is speculate, very similar to what you said too, Megan, about Selena. It's like, you know, when a star goes supernova and they just are, are snuffed out before we can see what happens, all we can do is just take them at their peak and say they would have just continued to rise, but we don't know that, you know, he might've done some um, poor films after that. But I do think that, um, like you were saying, Jay, about goth fans really being um, committed to the, the genre such that they're going to show up and buy tickets, that that just encouraged them all the more. And then it brought in people who maybe might not have seen it um, just because of the curiosity and, um, you know, uh, really feeling sad over such a tragic loss. I think he was 28. So, so yeah. young. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, and all we can do there is just kind of speculate too about its success. I still think it's a great film, but it's absolutely in my um, taste anyway to to fall in love with a movie like that. Um, it is so we talk on brand for you, Sandra. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely, I mean, and I get it. Yeah, it's so obvious. Like you could probably tell from what I wear <laughs> that I'm gonna love the girl and, and that genre. Um, so talking about just kind of the, the graphic nature of the film. So this was a rated R comic book film and it really did live up to the name. Like I mentioned before about how graphic some of the scenes were in the flashbacks, um, including drug use. You know, we see things that, I, that have stood out in my mind um, that I will never, for, never forget, particularly the scene with um, the mom and um, you know, the, I think it's heroin. I don't know drugs uh, too well, morphine. but morphine. morphine, morphine. That's right. Morphine coming out of her veins. Oh, so gross. Um, but we wonder today if comic book films should be rated R or if they should be made with a broader audience and a younger audience in mind. Um, so like I said, the crow, it really just kind of didn't give any Fs about its R rating. Um, so what do you think has changed in the comic book world and society as a large, uh, in large, as we think of kind of our desire now to have comic book films that are not rated R. Let's start with you, Scylla. I feel like it's, well, partly studios want to make money and a rated R movie is not going to make a studio as much money as opposed to a PG-13, you know, movie. I mean, besides Deadpool, the first Deadpool for sure. Um, <laughs> But I, I think you can have a spectrum of films that are tailored to different audiences that are comic book related. I think a lot of times people box comic book movies into something that have to be kid friendly all the time. But 
that's not a reflection of comics as a whole. You have various mm-hmm. comic properties that are for mature audiences, even if are even like from image comics, you know, having yeah. various more comics than we just think from Marvel or DC. So I think, I think overall, it's just people maybe putting, putting things in boxes when they don't have to also mm-hmm. with studios just going like, Hey, we need to make money on our investment. So this is why yeah. we switch to more of that broader audience. Yeah. Well, it's good business, I guess. <laughs> what do you think, Megan? I, I 100% concur with that sentiment. Um, the same thing happens with animation a lot of the mm-hmm. time. You know, people forget that comics and cartoons are not genres. They, they are mediums. They are mm-hmm. mediums for storytelling. And you can use those mediums to tell literally any kind of story for any kind of audience. Um, and so people forget that uh, these days. And I think the main reason for that is because comic book movies had become such crowd pleasers and mm. generally considered to be all audience type films um, or all ages type films, uh, mm. you know, and I, I will like kind of look towards the, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films that sort of steered things into that direction, which is hilarious in <laughs> hindsight because Sam Raimi is not only a very famous horror director, but he also did an R-rated superhero movie back in the day called Darkman. And oh, yeah. movies like Blade and The Crow and Darkman are all adult movies, um, but unlike the adult sort of fantastical movies of the 80s, like your RoboCops and um, your Predators and things like that, these movies aren't really expected to sell toys anymore. Or at least in the 90s, they weren't Mm -hmm. expected to sell toys. Um, And that's the main thing I think that has changed between um, adaptations of comic book movies from like the 90s versus... um, the early 2000s and onward is that now comic book movies are expected to not only be, you know, drawing big box office numbers, but they're also expected to sell toys. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I'm sure there were action figures of uh, the crow back in the day, but like now those are, I, I imagine for the most part, those would be major collectibles as opposed to something you'd be selling to um, a demographic of like 10 to 12 year olds, you know? Yeah. You know, I, I would love the crow toys. <laughs> that would be pretty awesome. Oh, there are definitely collectibles that exist. Uh, they're just going to be very expensive. I want. I need it. <laughs> uh, but I think that you you both have made really, really good points. I absolutely agree. You know, just thinking about making that money, making, you know, merchandising, um, being able to put the crow on a kid's t-shirt and a onesie and, you know, all, all of that. It's, it's interesting to Ooh, see. I want that. <laughs> if I, I have children, I'm going to make them wear a crow onesie. <laughs> you can put a onesie on a dog. I'm just That's saying. True. True. <laughs> I may have done it once or twice. Or three but, times. Um, I know. <laughs> but I, I think that, you know, I think that's true that that um, comic books are no longer a subculture. They're so ingrained in the culture for everybody. It's it's for everybody. And I, I think that it's good to be inclusive and say, yeah, you know, you might not read a comic 
book, but you can watch this film and enjoy it and appreciate the themes. Um, but we sacrifice um, the space to really give the stories um, truth in, in where where they were created and, and, and the themes that they address, you know? And I read a lot of image comics. I can't imagine many of them that I read being adapted onto film and having a PG-13 rating without sacrificing um, some of the things that make them really compelling and powerful. So, yeah, I mean, it, 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 we, we lose a little bit in, in being more accessible, I think. Um, what do you think, Jay? Yeah, I agree with everything that's said so far. I, I took the I took the question from a slightly different angle, so I'll have to see what you guys think of of this take on it. Because I think <laughs> what you guys have, have talked about already is is totally right. Um, our ratings are very fascinating to me because the first thing to, that I always think about is society's moral standard is never constant. Like right, like you just open a history book and you'll see the changing nature of society's moral standard. If if and obviously like. I'm talking about society as a collective, which is a whole bunch of different moral standards, but then agreed upon what's the worst and what's the best. Um, so I kind of get why the crow in 1994, um, arguably at the height or maybe like just a little post height of the Christian moral majority in the US, I get why it was controversial. Um, but the way that we release, that we produce and release art has changed so dramatically since that time. Like, just think about this the number of options we have available now as an audience is way more than we would have seen in the early nineties, right? Like we, there's so many more channels, so many more options that we can invest our time in. We used to see that the, the predominant way of watching, uh, just television. We'll just take television for a second. We, was used to be like FCC controlled. Like they would tell you what you could put on TV, and what you couldn't put on TV. Um, so you didn't get into like different kinds of like, uh, maybe like uh, what you call more rated R stuff until you move to basic cable and then move to the yeah. premium channels. And then you got really, okay, now you got the premium channels. You can watch kind of whatever you want. Um, <laughs> but now Very every, true. every streaming service besides those directed at kids like Disney plus, for example, all the other streaming services have mature content. A lot of them do at least. So I think that, that, in a world with fewer choices, The Crow to me stands out as a really bold choice for the filmmakers mm -hmm. to put out there. In a world of many choices where like Game of Thrones <laughs> was one of the most popular shows in the modern era. To me, I look at The Crow and I don't see it as, con as, as I don't see it as controversial as people saw it in the 90s, right? Because it's kind of like, oh, well, I see a lot of stuff that's coming out that's similar to this. Um, but I think also uh, to get at this, the idea that you have multiple choices. We had somebody in the Story Geeks Facebook group, um, Andrew Pritchett. Shout out to Andrew. He's, he kind of suggested that um, we expect certain properties to never have an R rating. And as I started to ponder that, I was like, you know what? It's so interesting because we actually just want the properties that we like to be reflected with our particular view on the properties, right? So, it's like, so here's an example. Um, he, you, you've heard a lot about like Batman doesn't kill people. So you might have one fan who says Batman is a quirky guy. This might be Sandra in a bad costume. And when he punches people on the screen, it says pow and yep. he dances, you know what I mean? Like there's no way that guy would ever kill people. Like there's no chance. 
<laughs> yeah, I love the dancing actually. For those of you on the on the audio feed, you can't see Sandra and Megan dancing the Betuthi. <laughs> the Betuthi. Yeah. Um, but then you've got a whole other fan because there's so many different pieces of content out there, and there's so many different ways of watching that content. You have another fan say, like, my favorite is Frank Miller's Batman. So let's see the bullets start flying. Like, I want that Batman. And so I feel like we have it's it's no longer about like, is this a controversial R-rated film? Now it's almost more controversial, like, it's not what I wanted, <laughs> right? Like, it's just <laughs> your personal preference and you being upset about the fact that they didn't do it the way that you would have done it. Um, and so, I, I don't know, I think it's I think it's sort of an interesting concept to say, how does our view of R-rated films change over time? And if you go and you ask me, like, what do you think about Zack Snyder doing um, his Justice League version that's going to be rated R? I'm like... I want to see that, and I don't care if it's rated R or not. But there's a lot of people that would say, don't show Superman in a rated R movie. Like, that sounds horrible. So it's just gotten <laughs> so personal to us. Um, and I think maybe we can – I hope that we can just learn. There's so much content out there. I hope there continues to be this amount of content out there because I really hope we get to a place where we just kind of go, oh, I'm really, I'm really glad that you like that. It's not my favorite thing. But I'm yeah. not going to hate on you because you like it and I don't, right? Like, let's just let each other like the things that we like and be cool with it. Anyways. Are that's... you are you expecting civil discourse, Jay? <laughs> <laughs> I, was know. I shouldn't. I shouldn't. I don't yeah. know what planet you're living on. <laughs> <laughs> People on the internet allowing bygones to be bygones uh, or agreeing to disagree. <laughs> I know. I know. Difference of opinions. Excuse me. <laughs> Jay, you turn around in that corner yeah. and you think about what you've done. I know. I'll talk I'll still I'll talk to you guys on the rest of the podcast later. <laughs> um well, I think Jay, we're going to have yes. a little bit of a break yeah, here. Yeah, we, we got a, we got a trailer coming up. So before we continue, um I'm going to play a quick clip. I say I'm going to play it. Tim is going to help me play it I'm not doing anything. Um, an audio cl clip from our audio book. Um, I'm going to point to it on the wall, but if you're not watching, if you're listening on audio, it's Death of a Bounty Hunter. And I'll, I just want to say this before before Tim hits play. See if you recognize one of the voices in the trailer. Just see if you recognize this. There might be a familiar voice in that trailer. So just take a listen and see if you can figure out who that is. <laughs> From the co-writers of the Amazon top-selling serial story, Time Slingers, comes a new, full-cast audiobook, Death of a Bounty Hunter, a supernatural steampunk western. Fourteen different characters voiced by 11 professional voice performers. A Korean bounty hunter named Flint finds himself in the middle of an occult plot to steal a powerful relic from an innocent woman. Get me the Iron Spur, and I will show you true power. Caught between the desperate sheriff who's becoming unhinged at the worst possible time. He mutters the word like a curse dipped in sarcasm. I draw my gun and shoot him between the eyes. And the phantom woman haunting his nightmares. The living always think the dead are worse off. Flint will have to make a choice. Confront the sheriff's posse of misfits or run. But he's losing time. An ogre of a man with a gatling gun for an arm. The brash and headstrong Pinkerton agent, Geraldine Abernathy. And a young, speedster idiot ludicrously named Fancy Dude. They'll all converge at the home of a widow who's lost everything but possesses the relic they all desire, the Iron Spur. 
Damn that trinket to hell. I don't care what it is or what it does or why the Duskfinders want it. I care about my children. Death of a Bounty Hunter. The weird western you've been waiting for. Available on www.deathofabountyhunter.com. Well, of course, the special voice in that trailer was none other than Megan Salinas. <laughs> Thank you, Megan, for being a part of that. Thank um, you so much for letting me be a part of that. I can't wait. Were you wait the one who cares my... about your... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I can't wait to get my hands on the Iron Spur. <laughs> <laughs> that answers That's my question. Awesome. I, was, I was trying to guess which one was you. <laughs> it will be mine. <laughs> she was the first voice on that trailer. So you can go back and listen to that anytime you want to, of course. Um, but if that sounds like something you'd be interested in, visit deathofabountyhunter.com for more info. Uh, we've been getting some great feedback, by the way. It is a semifinalist in the ScreenCraft Cinematic Book Competition. So all of that's very cool. Um, but obviously, if you just buy the novel, um, you don't get to hear Megan. So definitely go <laughs> actually listen to the audiobook. And don't forget, the trailer for Signal is still coming up at the end of the show. So make sure you don't miss out on that. Sandra, it is back to you. Well, now it's time to dig deep. You know, we just heard a trailer for an amazing story. So now we're going to dig deep into the amazing story of The Crow. So one of the things that we do at Story Geeks is we always talk about uh, these deeper themes, including the why of a character. Um, so the catalyst uh, for Eric Draven, it starts off with, um, well, okay backtracking the catalyst that starts the protagonist on the hero's journey um, we think about that with story so for the crow his catalyst is built off of fridging so that's a term for a comic book trope where the death of a female character serves as a catalyst for that hero's journey in this case we're going to ask if it works in the crow if this trope works why or why not and then before we dive into that though i think it's important to mention that James Obar, who's the author and artist of the Crow comic book series, that he actually lost his fiance in a car accident with a drunk driver. So keeping that in mind, knowing that it wasn't necessarily just a trope that he pulled from thin air, but actually something that um, was drawn from his own experience. Um, let's start with uh, you, Scylla. Do you think that this um, motivating factor for Eric Draven and the crow. Do you think that that worked in this film? I feel like it did, you know, when I first think of it, cause certain films you're able to tell like, Oh, of course she killed off the wife, you know, like fridging, like you said, but I mean, in a sense, he's also avenging his own death and what happened to him as well. Um, so for that part of that, like, I feel like that really works. And I just, it goes back to the overall theme of wanting justice, whatever that looks like. Because we see so many things on the day-to-day -day that we can't have control over are just beginning something that seems like so black and white of like, hey, this individual is guilty or these group of people are guilty. Why is nothing being done to stop that? You know, that that is something that is just timeless. So I think that's why it, it works for this in terms of the hero's mm -hmm. journey. Because it's like, yeah, we want to see these guys being taken care of. And also the head person that really was behind everything at, you know, at the end of the day. So mm -hmm. I think it works because that is something that happens time and time again of wanting mm -hmm. to see justice when there's often times we don't see it. What a timely 
topic to talk about today of all days of <laughs> wanting to see justice. Hmm. All right, let's go. <laughs> I know. Justice. Hmm. Anyway, no all right. <laughs> accountability <laughs> would be nice. Yes. Okay. Yeah, just like a, an ounce of accountability. Um, all right, Megan, let's go to you. Do you think that this works? Um, like, obviously, this is a trope where your mileage may vary. Um, whenever mm-hmm. you are dealing with particular story beats that deal with this particular type of sensitive nature, like it's in. It, I I do think that this is definitely one of those stories where if I was throwing it at friends, I would provide a content warning because mm-hmm. I have a lot of friends who are very sensitive to this type of material. So it's certainly a your mileage may vary type of story. That mm-hmm. being said, for me, and this is just my opinion, I think it does work in this particular mm-hmm. story. And I think that it's because the source material comes from yeah. a place of real grief. There's mm-hmm. a sincerity in that storytelling that just doesn't exist in mm-hmm. similar works or derivative works where mm-hmm. um, this story represents real pain from a real person. Mm-hmm. And it's not just done for cheap drama. Um, and that's not to say that cathartic storytelling w- will always make for good stories. Um, mm-hmm. I, I've certainly seen, um, I, I think, I've, I've, <laughs> I've said a couple times, there's a film called It Comes at Night, um, where it was marketed as a horror movie, but really it's kind of like a family drama with horrific elements. Um, mm. But because it was marketed as a horror movie, I was really disappointed when I saw it. And... But then I felt really bad about thinking how bad I thought the movie was because I found out that the author um, wrote it. Um, he he busted it out in three days after the passing of his estranged father. Like it was a way for him to process his grief. And I mm-hmm. felt really conflicted about that mm-hmm. after I found that out. Um, but at the end of the day, like you know, when you put something out into the world, like people are going to interpret it, you know, how they will, regardless of whether or not they know what went into it, um, what went into those particular stories. So I think, you know, again, not to say that cathartic storytelling um, from a writer's perspective will always make for a cathartic or entertaining or even compelling narrative to read or consume uh, as an audience member. But I think it works here. Um, I mm-hmm. think that um, the journey that uh, that Draven goes on, that Eric goes on, it's relatable enough, but also fantastical enough for us to process and really identify with him on those deeper, very human levels but it's it also works if you just want to turn your brain off and just kind of absorb it as mindless entertainment. Um, but I think it sort of begins and ends with that sincere storytelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, gosh, that that was really good. <laughs> um, Jay, let's see if you could top that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I doubt I can top it. I, I just what it brought up for me is it brought up this interesting um because i'm a white male storyteller right so like like there are there society has changed in ways where 
uh, let's face it, people that look like me have won in this industry in terms of winning. I mean, been given jobs, been given opportunities that other people have not had, right? So you're going to hear me say this from that perspective. Um, I think that this issue of a, catal a catalyst for characters to then act. I don't think that um, fridging is uh, like a moral problem. I don't think if you if you include that in your story, I don't think it's a moral issue. But there is a moral issue behind this issue, and because because basically I think it's basically a trope and it's overdone and you probably shouldn't use it. Figure out another way to do it. Like John Wick figured out, let's kill the dog, right? Like the, then the catalyst is killing the dog. The thing that I think that is the moral issue that is behind this, that people will go, oh, that has it has fridging, so it's bad. They should stop for a second, I think, and consider why they might say that fridging is bad. Um, because I think when you break it down, the real issue is that there hasn't been enough representation. And that in and of itself may not be evil but what is evil is how the choices were made that got us to that place right so if you think about that you think about like well the people in power chose to silence these voices sometimes stealing those voices by the way um, only to put it in a different place then you can say well every time this kind of story prompt or catalyst shows up it's bad and i would say well that's not necessarily true um, however, what you could say is it is overused. It's tropey. Mm -hmm. Why are you doing it? And why don't you get another voice to tell this story? And that's where I think that um, that's where I think the discussion should move to, because what will end up happening is we won't come together around. Around what the real issue is, and then we'll just point fingers at each other and go like you use fridging and you're an idiot. Uh, and then you go, no, 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 <laughs> I should be able to do whatever I want, you know, and that's that's just a dumb conversation because we're talking about a story and a catalyst in a story. A much better conversation is why are we silencing some voices and and promoting other voices? Um and, and I think the industry has done that for a really long time. You we it's hard for a month to go by where we don't see another person, especially in the geek world. We saw another person in the geek world being called out last week, right? Like, um, yeah. and I think that that's kind of more of the issue is like, it's about where the money goes. It's about who gets the voice. It's about those kind of things. Um, and of course I would say at the end of the day, fridging is a trope. So let's move right. beyond that trope. So that's kind of my take. You guys can't yeah. hear it, but as Jay was talking, all three of us were nodding vigorously. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Um, you know, you bring up so many um, so many points. Like, all three of you actually brought up points that I want to uh, jump into. Um, going back to what you mentioned, um, Megan, about the catharsis of having, like, gone through what James of our went through just losing his fiance and um, using art to be that catharsis. That's important. You know, whenever anyone's been through something traumatic, use what it is that um, they're most drawn to writing, dancing, singing, creating, painting, whatever um, as their catharsis. And that's a wonderful tool to kind of work through your grief. However, that's not always a good result. Like what you were talking about, Megan, it can, it can be very um, self-indulgent because it's focused on self and focused on, you know, the process. And then to share that, I think can be dangerous. 
sometimes if it's not uh, something that is ready to be consumed by the public because it really is is not good quality, even though it was a good process for that person to go through. Um, with the crow, I do think it works. And I think the reason why fridging is a trope is because whether it's male or female, um, something like that happening is going to motivate a character. So we see that reverse. Now, of course, the issue is the reason why it's a trope is because we're talking about female characters. And so the lack of representation is the issue. But the idea around a character losing someone, and that is the catalyst. We see that with Batman. We see that with Spider-Man. We see that in women, like with Peppermint, um, that film, Jennifer Garner, that is her catalyst. Her her family dying is what shifts her into being this, you know, a badass who's going to kill um, the people. Well, then the tropes there are dealing with like uh, Mexican drug deal or whatever. I was going to say, yeah, I don't know if we have trope. time to unpack all. Of that. <laughs> no, because that is just a whole other slew of tropes that they're guilty of. Um, but the idea is again going around representation. So in that film, it has to do with a lack of representation for Latinos. In this one, it's a lack of representation for women where Shelly's whole character is nothing. She's really nothing. Like we don't know anything about her. It's just, well, that's, that was his fiance and he's mad that she's dead. (laughs) And like, that's all we know about her. Um, So if that were made today, with the 2021 lenses, um, I think we would have more of an issue with it um, because it was made in the 90s. We kind of give it that, or at least for me, I give it that that pass. Um, it is a trope, but I do still feel like because it was so, um, it, it it was personal. It was personal for James Abar. It is acceptable and understandable that this is how he feels his fiance was stolen from him from someone who was doing something atrocious they were drunk driving and she he lost his his love you know and so i think it i think it works because it's personal um yeah but gosh what what a a heavy topic to just kind of think <laughs> of why so if we are okay with this trope now let's talk about Eric Draven. Well, really as... quick, really quick oh, if, I, yeah. if I can interrupt you. Um, Jessica, uh, my wife actually, asked, oh. like, when you say fridging, what does that mean? So, oh. so what, yeah. what's the historical yeah, I context? To define that term. Yeah, yeah. Why don't you define the term? Who wants, who wants to take a crack at that? I, I did define it earlier when I first asked the question. So it is, um, it's the catalyst. I'm sorry. So fridging is the term for a comic book trope where the death of a female character serves as a, as a catalyst for the hero's journey. So losing a female character. Um, and, and so that's what, what fridging is. And so when we talk about losing a character, um, if it's not a female character, or like the sole purpose of that female character is just to lose her life so that the hero can go on, on his journey, um, that's fridging. But yeah. when we think of someone like Peter Parker and Batman or Bruce um, Bruce Wayne, it's different because it's not a female character that has no other purpose, no other story other than to just die and be that that motivation. Yeah, because is it the term based on? I can't remember what comic, but literally the female character 
was put in a fridge yeah. and was dead. I, so that's... I think it was a Green Lantern. <laughs> was comic. it Green Lantern? Okay. I yeah. believe yeah. so. I might yeah. be misremembering that. But yeah, it was a Green Lantern comic where um, he comes home and literally his his dead girlfriend has been stuffed into their yeah, fridge. fridge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. where the that's where the term originates. Cause yeah. and and to be fair, I definitely whenever I do see this trope, uh, especially in modern storytelling, like mm-hmm. you say, Jay, because it's been so used and because mm-hmm. women um have been so overlooked in a lot of um these spaces, I do tend to roll my eyes and mm-hmm. I don't know how I would have reacted to the crow had I not known ahead of time that that was a particular plot point. So I was prepared for it. If I had come into it blind and got, you know, completely sidelined by it, I would have been like, what the fuck, guys? (laughs) Pardon my language. (laughs) Ooh, I'm telling. Um, I do want to point out another comment from Jessica. And that is about that soundtrack. Oh yes, that soundtrack is freaking beautiful. My favorite, I mean, I love The Cure, but I love It Can't Rain All The Time from James Cyberry, I think that's how you say her last name. Um, Such a beautiful song at the end credits and you're just like, (laughs) anyway, it is such a wonderful um, soundtrack. By the way, every time they put put a rose on the grave, uh, the seal seal song from Batman started coming into my head. Every time. The nerve, Jay. I'm like, why don't they just play that? Why don't they just play that? I mean, come on, just do it. <laughs> well, let's talk about though. Now we we've talked about the trope, but let's talk about um, that catalyst and what it it results in for Eric Draven. You know, how do we view him in light of that? Is he a hero? Is he a villain? Um, anti-hero? Something else? Um, and does it work? Let's start with. Let's go with you, Megan. I think, and again, this is one of those things where I I feel like you could potentially get a different answer depending on who you ask. But for me, I think of Eric Draven as an anti-hero. He does heroic stuff along the way, um, but his primary goal is revenge. It's Mm -hmm. not necessarily justice or protecting the innocent. Um, He wants to make the people who caused him and his his fiance suffering, he wants to make them suffer in return. And I have mixed feelings on revenge as, um, as a storytelling device. Um, I have mixed feelings on it because in my heart, in real life, I think in real life, Um, you know, a person who seeks revenge digs two graves. And so I think it's fine in escapist, you know, sort of fantasy um, filmmaking and everything like that. Um, But I think pursuing it in real life is a a hollow endeavor. And um, I think it's played in the original comic. It is played out a little bit more as, you know, revenge is kind of hollow because that's, what his journey is in the comics. He gets revenge on um, these people who, who, who wronged him. And then he just goes straight back to his grave. He it's less of a hero's journey and more of just kind of like this exploration of grief um, because in between each of the killings, it's a lot of reflection and mourning. Um, 
but in in the film it's a little bit more of a hero's journey like he helps uh and and granted you know he does help people along the way in the comic too but like um he's made a little bit more heroic in the film um like he's given weaknesses and um he had a you know a connection with sarah before he died um and so that kind of makes him relatable too and he needs help from uh uh, Ernie Hudson's character on occasion. Um, so th they they give him weaknesses where in the original comic he did not have them. Um, so even though they make him a touch more heroic or at least sprinkle in elements of the hero's journey here and there, I think at his core in both the source material and the film, he's an anti-hero because ultimately he's not seeking to save the world. He's just looking to take certain people down yeah all right jay you're up what do you <laughs> think we've got one vote for anti-hero <laughs> well okay so i'm gonna say that i'm 100 team megan on this one and <laughs> uh but, but let me um explain how i got there because i think megan very eloquently described why he works that way in the movie and i think she's 100 right on that um but i went through this personal journey largely because of this podcast and because as a writer, I like the mechanics of how things work and why we think someone's a hero or why we think someone's a villain or why we think they're an anti-hero. And so I kept, Daryl and I kept exploring this, this, this whole aspect of like, well, what makes, what on screen makes us then say hero, villain, anti-hero. And, um, and I think that you can, for at least for me, I'm sure everyone else has their own opinion on it. And I don't think actually Google or Webster's is helpful at all because they're <laughs> going to give you this definition where you, you can come to different conclusions about Thanos or you can come to different conclusions about mm -hmm. um, Eric Killmonger. And I didn't want that because I wanted to have, I wanted to break it down. So anyways, give all that context to say that for me, a hero acts selflessly for the greater good, sacrificing himself for others. A villain acts out of self-interest for herself or her tribe. And an anti-hero really wants to stay out of it, wants to act selfishly to benefit him or herself, but ultimately chooses to help others even at her own peril. So in other words, their, their inherent, uh, like, like Wolverine, you can imagine Wolverine, he doesn't really want to get involved. He doesn't really want to help people out. But at the end of the day, he steps up and does it, despite the fact that 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 he's not he's not a Luke Skywalker. Luke Skywalker, from the moment he has the dream, is like, now I've got to go do something, right? Um, I think even even someone like Batman, you can say his motivation from the beginning is even though he might be very violent, which then leads people to think like, well, maybe anti-hero. Well, yeah, but he's actually trying to do that to solve for Gotham's problems while he works out his own psychology maybe, but still it's for Gotham. He's doing it for Gotham. And wh whereas Superman's obviously a hero. There's like, you know, I know that, I know that Zack Snyder made him a little bit uh, grayer than normal, but it's, he's a hero. So that, that for me is how you break it down. If you, if you find those elements. And so the way that um, Megan just described how, uh, how Eric Draven works, he's an anti-hero. I mean, it's, and, and I think it might work a little different if, in the comic because he might just be a villain in the comic. And it might just say, there's bad people, but I'm a bad person. And let's just see the, if I'm a bad person and they're bad people and I'm acting selfishly and they're acting selfishly, at least they're worse than me. So I just kill them and then we'll be, we're done with it. And I just think that, so for me, it works in this film, but I need to read the comic actually because I like actually mm -hmm. explorations of films that say, 
well, kind of everybody's in between hero and villain, and sometimes we all act mm -hmm. like villains. I love that kind of concept. Mm -hmm. So I don't mind if if even if Eric Draven ends the movie and you go, I think he's kind of a villain. I, I, I'm okay with that. But I don't think we can call him an anti-hero or a hero if he ends the movie that way. We should just call him a villain. So there's my there's my take. <laughs> nice. All right. So two votes for anti-hero. What do you think, Scylla? Uh, it's going to be a third vote for anti-hero. Yeah! <laughs> so I was, I was ping-ponging a bit between hero and anti-hero. Um, I feel like both of you articulated so well. So uh, trying to think what to add to that, it's just, it. Jay, you make a very good point of like, what he's doing is pretty much a selfish means, even though it really mm -hmm. does help others out. And if you think about it, helped out that whole city because now every gangster and main gangster is mm -hmm. now gone. Um, <laughs> but I, I think I just, what I liked a lot about that film was his connection to Sarah, even though maybe mm -hmm. that wasn't the intention, you know, he... He reflects and, you know, him and his fiance had a strong connection with her before they both passed. Um, so still showing that connection, I think, would, was making me lean a little bit. Well, you know, Hero, like, still really caring about her. Even going to give her the, re like, Shelby's ring, you know, like, yeah. or Shelby's ring, not Shelby. Um, you know, so, like, <sighs> that's why we kept flip-flopping, but I think it's definitely anti-Hero. Yeah, I agree. So a fourth vote for anti-hero. <laughs> but I will say from, from Eric's perspective, just like for all of us, we are the hero in our own story, right? Mm -hmm. So from his perspective, he believes he's the hero. And that's why he does something noble when he is talking to the pawn shop guy and he's throwing all the rings and he's like, every single one of these is a life ruined. And so he's calling him out and he destroys the shop because he knows that he got like the pawn shop owner got all of these goods from the result of somebody being robbed, probably mm -hmm. harmed or killed. Mm -hmm. So from his perspective, he's the hero. I think the real hero is Sergeant Albrecht mm -hmm. because he does put himself in danger because he's concerned of, and, and not only like physical danger, but also uh, professional danger uh, because he knows that something is going going on. He doesn't harm Eric Draven um, when he has the potential to. So I think he's the real hero. Eric Draven is is the anti-hero. And I think I think what would um, show something heroic and probably the most heroic thing that Eric Draven does is um, when he's when he is faced with Darla, Sarah's mom. So Darla works in this bar, I guess, with all of these criminals and she's doing morphine and she's completely ignoring her daughter, which is why Shelly and Eric had kind of adopted her in a sense. Mm. Um, and now she, um, Sarah doesn't have that anymore because they're gone. Um, so all she has is, is the sergeant and, you know, this, this mom who really just kind of tosses money her way or go eat or whatever. Um, and that scene where Eric kills, I think, Fun Boy, and then he he goes to Darla, and she thinks that she's going to get killed, and he just put he holds her up against the mirror, or so she's facing the mirror, and he shows her the needle marks in her arms, and he tells her mother is a name for God, and the hearts of um, hearts and, and uh, lips of children of all children. And that scene, when I saw it in the theater, and even to this day, whenever I watch that movie, and he says that, I'm like, that is such a powerful scene. 
because he doesn't shame her. He reminds her of her status. He reminds her that she is a mother and she is God to her child. So own up to that, live up to that. And I think that is such a powerful scene. Um, And that is probably the most heroic that he is. Everything else is very selfish um, and even flaunting his power where he gets shot in the hand and he's like, oh, ha, 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 Um, (laughs) But that scene um, is very powerful. And he had um, every every ability to really shame her and, um, and he doesn't. And so I think in that scene, he shows um, some heroic behavior, but otherwise it's, it's really a Sergeant Albrecht who has um, Mm -hmm. the heroism and, and yeah, once, once Eric Draven kills everyone that he needs to kill, he pieces out and he, (laughs) you know, he's like, screw the city. I'm going with my girl. Yeah. Um, I, I think you, know. you hit the nail on the head. Absolutely. Um, if we think of a hero as somebody who acts selflessly, then absolutely. Um, uh, Ernie Hudson's character is by far the most yeah. selfless character in the yeah. entire film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think he was so great. I loved mm-hmm. him in that movie. And, I'm, <laughs> and I love Sarah too. Like, cause I was, yeah kind of young when I saw the film and I was like, Oh, I want to like ride a skateboard in the rain. And like, <laughs> <laughs> I wish I was as cool as Sarah, but um, I know. <laughs> Ernie Hudson in this movie is fantastic, but also not that it's related to like any of our discussion topics, but I feel like I had to point it out at some point, Tony Todd in this movie. Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> I was hoping you were going to go there. <laughs> Tony Todd in this movie is absolutely fabulous and he looks I think cooler than he does cooler and like more suave than he does in any other movie and I say that as somebody who adores him in Candyman like oh, oh yeah. my gosh he's I so cool forgotten, I had forgotten that he was in this this film so when I watched it the other day I was like is that freaking Candyman <laughs> he's been given a bigger role he needed a bigger role in this film. He <laughs> is so handsome. <laughs> he is. Not to go he off is, topic but... with how handsome he is, but I do just really quick. Yeah. Um, this is one of the this is one of the powerful aspects to me of the of the goth genre is that it acknowledges that we are all sort of anti-heroes right like it acknowledges that uh, the that when you put a character in a film they're not all good or all bad they're somewhere in between and they're oscillating and that's really more like the human experience and that's why i think so many goth films work so well if you take any of tim burton films reveal that they reveal the nature of humanity and it's kind of like well do you wake up this day and you do do good things or do you wake up this day and you act like a total jerk um and that's a hard choice to make every minute of every day. And so mm-hmm. I, I really enjoy that aspect of it because we can sit here and draw out things about this film that are deeper just because the artists that made it said, yeah, we're all somewhere in between. So I kind of I really mm-hmm. like that aspect to it. Yeah, no, completely. And, and I like I like an antihero story because we are somewhere in between and and we will think too highly of ourselves if we think that we are consistently the hero. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's dangerous because we're you're teetering on the verge of being a villain at that mm-hmm. point. Yeah. Um, so going back to like his motivation of wanting 
to make things right. So we have other genres and Jay, you actually mentioned it earlier about John Wick. Um, and you know, we have a bunch of, a bunch of other films, B movies from Bruce Willis and such <laughs> where, where we have this blend of grief fulfillment and the quest for justice. And, you know, if we've lived life, we have a need for justice. Something has happened in our lives that has been unjust and we want justice. Something has happened where we've lost someone or something and we have grief. Um, what do you think makes this kind of grief fulfillment and quest for justice um, a compelling concept? And for the crow, would what would justice look like? Um, you know, what does it actually look like for him? And does revenge play a role in justice at all? Let's start with you, Scylla. Well, I think, I don't know why, when you're talking about revenge play, I also think of Kill Bill, um, which is like one of my yes. favorite movies. Because it's, yeah. it's literally, it, it tells you what she wants to do. <laughs> like in both films. Right. Like let it all make a list. Yes. <laughs> um, and I think the reason that we as human nature get attracted to revenge play in, in films is because there is part of us, even though we know that revenge at the end of the day, mm-hmm. I think Megan, you mentioned it earlier, is like, it's just very hollow. Part of us really wants that because we we want to feel like, hey, I want to feel like this right. I mean, this wrong has been righted. Um, so I think that's why we as humans get a- attached to that. Um, I think for him, I think justice would literally just be like, hey, I take care of everybody. Let me go back to the grave <laughs> like he was going to. And that's pretty much it. So when you think about it, you're like, oh, okay, that's it. Um, but I think even for people, when we see that, it's like, okay, you took care of it, great. Like, you mm-hmm. fulfill what you were supposed to do. And I, I think we get satisfied with that. Or even, mm-hmm. you know, thinking back to Kill Bill. She kills Bill, <laughs> gets to hang out with her daughter, and you're like, even though you could be like, okay, that was it. It's like, oh, it was a very stylish way of doing it. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so I think just we as humans, we get attracted to that even though we know that you know two wrongs don't make a right at the same time that's what we want to see happen because mm-hmm. of those frustrations that we experience as people yeah yeah no for real for real and i love that you mentioned kill bill like i love tarantino and <laughs> kill bill i love almost as much as i love pulp fiction which is a lot so <laughs> <laughs> all right megan what do you think Um, I think one of the reasons why this concept is so compelling, um, kind of like we've discussed uh, throughout the course of this uh, show, um, it it taps into something very visceral and very relatable Mm -hmm. that we as human beings just experience as we live our lives. And I think it can give us a vehicle to process a lot of those emotions. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of times when we lose someone, There's no action we can take. There's no justice to be sought. Mm -hmm. We either have to confront or repress that pain and then move on. Mm -hmm. Um, And so stories like this can be really like appealing and compelling because it creates a scapegoat for those feelings, somebody we can blame. And it boils down the complexity of loss into a good versus bad narrative. And good mm-hmm. versus bad narratives are easy um, mm-hmm. and a lot easier to process than the nuances of grief. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so it can be really cathartic if if that's what you're seeking in a story like we were talking about earlier, or it can be mindless entertainment if you're not seeking that because there it turns something where there uh, there is no justice to be sought. Like it removes all of the moral ambiguity out of real mm. life loss. Um, and for for the crow, I think it kind of boils down to what what's said at the very beginning of the film. Mm. Um, a soul can continue to linger on if there is such extreme loss and sadness mm -hmm. connected to that death. And sometimes a crow will bring someone back to right the things that have been wronged. And mm -hmm. so justice for the crow as framed out at the beginning of the movie actually is destroying the people who destroyed Draven and his fiance's life. Like yeah. that's how the narrative frames justice in this case. Mm -hmm. I would disagree. I, I don't necessarily think that um, murder <laughs> in real, if we're talking Not your cup of tea. If, if we're talking about the purposes of storytelling, I think it's yeah. fine. Um, obviously nobody gets hurt in that scenario, but if we're talking real life, I do not necessarily believe in an eye for an eye. I believe in accountability. Um, and I believe it. I, but my version of justice does not involve an eye for an eye and it does not involve revenge because as I said before, in real life, revenge is pretty hollow. It doesn't bring you the satisfaction that you hope and long for. Um, and there are a lot of instances in which people who, um, you know, seek out that revenge in like the, the way our legal system lines it out. And when they finally get it, they're like, I feel nothing. And I feel like I've yeah. wasted a lot of my life pursuing um, this thing that has left me feeling hollow inside. So mm -hmm. like I said, in storytelling, I think it's great. It's fun. It's all in good fun. But if we're talking about real life, I think it's a little different. And so it can get a little complicated when you mix in real life tragedy with those fantastical escapist, um, you know, stories that we that we seek out. Yeah, yeah, that's so good, so mm -hmm. so good. Um, what do you have to add to that, Jay? <laughs> not a not a whole lot. The only, the only yeah. thing I, have, I think I think the way that um, that you guys have both articulated it is fantastic. The only thing that um, the only thing that I would point out is that I do think, and you guys have said this, I do think that this film, because it explores Eric's grief. And because it exp explores a little bit, like he's trying to help out the young girl that has been befriended him as well. Like that's a part, that's a subplot of the whole story. So there's elements of that that I think that are explored in this film that work. I totally agree with Megan that revenge is often not equitable with justice at all. Um, and I love the way that Megan talked about that. The other way that I'd say it is these films can sometimes become the equivalent of pornography from a justice standpoint. And what I mean by that is you're, you're not, you're pushing aside all of the things that could, that could build intimacy that could actually deal with your emotional state that could um, help you um, come to terms with the grief that you have because of what was played out for you. But instead you're going to say, no, I'm just going to invest in this non or, or this, um, this 
pornographic revenge. I don't mean that like literally. I mean it as in it's it's a it's an escape to make you feel better for a time that doesn't actually deal with your real issues. And so I think Megan said that really, really well. And that's what the revenge genre can turn into. And I think that uh, I just listened to a really long empire podcast where um, Tarantino was talking about some of those things and he, and he described some uh, um, the emotional responses of audiences relative to revenge moments in films. He didn't talk about kill bill uh, ironically, but um, <laughs> And as he talked about that, I thought to myself, like, you know, I do believe that storytellers have a responsibility, and I like the word accountability too, to not always give audiences that that those false or fake emotions that like that lead them to a conclusion that is actually not true in the real world. Yes, there is a place for escapism in in art, and I'm not saying that there isn't. But I think that we have to be very careful about the art that we invest in and then what we take from it. Um, and you could just sit in front of a movie and just watch it and be like, it was mindless and I don't care. And I felt really good when the bad guy got killed. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily bad, but I think you also have to surround yourself with other art and other conversations that actually give you a better, deeper view of the world. So I'm I'm team Megan and Scylla on that, and I, I think it's more complex than I like that the crow makes it a little bit more complex, but it's more complex than a lot of revenge, what I would call revenge porn movies actually are about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I and just thinking about, I'm wondering if the reason we had like a lot of people and myself included, like Kill Bill is one of my favorite films, that we attach to revenge type films, it's because it's the extreme end of not forgiving somebody. Are holding mm -hmm. back forgiveness because it's like, well, you didn't do anything to deserve that forgiveness. So I'm going to hold on to it as long mm -hmm. as possible. When in reality, it really just eats at us. And again, is that same hollowness that you just experience in the end? That's the dig yeah. two graves comment from Megan, which I totally agree yeah. with. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's similar to disaster type films. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, zombie films where we explore something um, that has the potential to come true, or even in our minds, it's something that we meditate on getting that revenge. Mm -hmm. So we explore it in a safe way through film or through, mm -hmm. you know, raging music or something. Mm -hmm. um, but we explore it that way. And that is the catharsis. That is the working it out in our own system. And, you know, Pixar is really great at that too. You know, it's mm. not just these revenge films, but these other films that are really good at allowing you to process something from a space that is safe. And, you know, and, and C.S. Lewis wrote about, um, uh, I think Gaiman quotes him, but just talking about the, um, that if there are dragons, then there, there are dragon slayers and the ability to slay those dragons. Yeah. Um, and, and so we get to do that. We explore that through story. And so we not, not only explore grief or love or justice, but we explore even, you know, all facets of, of the human experience, including revenge or the desire for that. And then we can see hopefully in these stories that it's going to be fleeting because at the end of the day, all he really wanted was that that piece to be with Shelley. Now, of course, he accomplishes that piece 
despite wronging the rights according to the narrative that, as Megan pointed out, is established within that world. In that world, the narrative is, this is why you come back, kill those people, basically, <laughs> and you have wrong, you have righted the wrong, and then you could peace out, right? So in, in that world, that is justice. And so it works because those are the rules set up in that world. In our world, those ain't the rules, or at least those aren't the rules as they apply to some of us. Um, I was so, gonna say, if you happen to know anyone that a crow has brought back, we have questions. <laughs> In the real world, we have questions. I'm talking about, you know, um, the fact that uh, justice doesn't look that way. <laughs> <laughs> that and, too, that too. Yeah. But you know, who knows? Maybe a crow's up to some, you know, right and wrongs here. I think uh, I think we can summon up a crow for a few things. But uh, but yeah, ultimately, in our world, that sort of justice I think would be very fleeting. And like, I mean, I, I try to explore things and and personalize things, and like that's not that is not how I would get peace. I wouldn't get peace by murdering people even like with the anger and the the deep deep grief of seeing your loved one go through that like i just don't think that that ultimately brings peace um it will be very fleeting um ooh, ooh so we have a comment here speaking to my um, horror heart megan i think you'll appreciate this too hill house actually helps them deal with grief um and yeah absolutely i think Hill House was very, very helpful for me as I was in kind of the thick of my um, grief. And, and to see that play out and to see what it looks like in the different um, stages. Um, so in, in this one for the crow, um, he's in that stage really of anger. And, um, and ultimately in our world, that sort of justice wouldn't work. But absolutely in the crow's world in eric draven's world it does work because those are the rules like those are absolutely the rules that they're supposed to play by um yeah all right so now we're gonna like kind of bring it home um and this is something that as i was exploring this topic i didn't realize how many other iterations of the crow there have been like sequels and then like even a tv show i was like what when did this happen <laughs> And I have no interest in them. And clear, <laughs> clearly other audiences have not either because they have not been successful at all. Um, but there's talk of a reboot. In fact, Jason Momoa was, was cast, but then I think ultimately he walked away from that. So I want to ask, um, especially for the, well, you all actually, I discovered in during this show that you all are new to this film. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm curious what, what you all think, um, you know, is it even worth rebooting? And if so, who would you cast? So let's start with you, Megan. Okay. So I rewatched this on prime this morning and you know how sometimes when you watch something on prime, if you move your mouse, all of a sudden it'll throw random trivia at you. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of the random bits of trivia uh, that they threw at me, and I, this is one of those things where it's like citation needed because I, I Googled it later and I couldn't find anything, um, was that originally they had been conceiving The Crow as a musical. 
Um, and so, but ultimately decided against that and wanted to give it a more serious tone. And I think for the film as it exists now, it's it's fine the way it is. I don't need it rebooted. If you wanted to do something like anthology storytelling where the crow brings back different people each time and they each have their own um, wrongs that need righted, I think that could be interesting, certainly. Mm. Um, but if we want to go back to the story of Eric Draven specifically, the only way I want to see it rebooted or remade is if you make it a musical. If make it a musical as it was originally envisioned. <laughs> and as far as who should be cast to play uh, Eric Draven, um, the first person that comes to mind, uh, honestly, I, I would want it opened up to wider casting um, for the purposes of being inclusive. But the first person that came to my mind was Jeremy Jordan, who... Uh, if uh, if you all are familiar with the musical adaptation of the Death Note, <laughs> of Death Note, uh, he did the English singing voice in, voice for Light Yagami. So uh, I would pay a lot of money to hear Jeremy Jordan play uh, a musical version of The Crow. That's uh, that's my two cents. <laughs> so I I have to say. When you said a musical, I immediately went to uh, Dracula's Lament and that whole musical <laughs> from getting Sarah Marshall. I can't. <laughs> because I want to see that so bad. <laughs> the very end of that song was like, die, die, die. But come on, guys. Can you pick, can't you picture it, though? A rock opera of <laughs> hell the yeah sign me up it would be all amazing. 90s inspired 90s music inspired yeah hell yeah yeah hmm. i'm kind of interested in that now <laughs> look and i've said it before um, and i'll say it again anything is made better when you add the musical to the end of it evil dead the musical reanimator the musical <laughs> It works. High School Musical, the musical, <laughs> the series. <laughs> All right, Jay, can you top The Crow, the musical? No, I definitely cannot top The Crow, the musical. <laughs> I, I'm interested in. Um, I'm not really interested in a reboot either. the 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 concept sets itself up for like a one shot type of deal. Like Megan kind of said it. Like the concept itself is sort of like you come back to right the wrongs that happened to you, um, which, which actually sets it up for, I mean, he can't come back and, you know, what is it <laughs> next year? It's like rise from the grave again, dude. Cause remember that one time you got your book stolen in high school, you know, it's like, I mean, what's, <laughs> it's going to get crazy real fast. Um, so, but I do think it would be interesting The anthology is a fantastic idea with yeah. him bringing back other people. That's really interesting to me, or even just, just he's not even a part of it anymore and it's just different stories of people being wronged and them um being brought back to life by the crow being the actual crow yeah. that brought that brought eric back yeah. that to me sounds amazing unless unless you're going to do something like actually tweak the premise and the premise is going to be something like you know uh writing the wrongs of the world i i've all, i've often thought about this from a storytelling perspective um i even had a story that i was doing as a comic book that was sort of similar like we all have the things that we want to write and then we sort of think like well i don't I, i'm not as passionate about writing that wrong but i'm really passionate about writing this wrong and i've always thought about putting a character 
into the space where they had to write wrongs, even though they were like, but wait a minute, I don't want to write this wrong. I want to write the other, I want to do the other thing over there because I feel like that is um, really interesting in the modern day when you have like social media and you can kind of say how you feel about everything, but, and it's all, it's kind of like assumed that we should all care the same amount about all the same things, but like human beings are not really wired to be able to do that. Well, um, we all have things that we're more passionate about or less passionate about. And so I thought it would be interesting to have a character who's put in the place of having to be like, no, 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 no. you, you have to go write that other wrong that you're not as passionate about, but the person who's sending them back is very passionate about that to me is an interesting kind of conflict. But other than that, like, I don't see, I don't see a need for bringing up more of it unless you do it like Megan said. So why not make it a musical and just <laughs> reboot it that way? I'm fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so like, you want a musical too? <laughs> no. Uh, and this is somebody that is the only musical I really like is Hamilton. So I guess if you want to make... Oh, I'm Team rap, Stella on this, by the way. I'm Team Stella. <laughs> like, yes. Like, I just not a big musical person. I've never been. It's like I'm not a big museum person. They're they're cool, but they're wasted on me. <laughs> but so I, and I, I are best friends now. <laughs> <laughs> you like have not lived until you've seen Evil Dead the musical. <laughs> if it's you less creepy lived. than Evil Dead the actual movie, then maybe. <laughs> but I'll counter with musicals. Spider Man the musical, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think an anthology would be cool. I think like having the original crow, like just, you know, reviving certain individuals, but otherwise I feel like this whole tendency to re reboot everything is just way too much. It doesn't need to be done. I, I think because of how iconic this movie is and just everything attached to it. I, I just don't think it would have the same impact story wise or on a personal level for many people or many people that, you know, idealize this movie and even Brandon Lee would probably just be like, nope, I'm not watching this. I leave it alone. <laughs> you know, I, I think Eric Draven should not come back. Um, mm. I do not think that we need someone um, playing the role of Eric Draven. Because also, too, like how... Um, I just realized my dog's in here. <laughs> like, how long <laughs> have you been in here? <laughs> I'm like, what? She was so good. Um, anyway, so no, I feel like that would be almost like an offense to Brandon Lee's legacy to have mm -hmm. someone play Eric Draven. Although I would love to see like what you were mentioning, Jay, the crow, like the bird, bringing back different people in time, like throughout the course of history. So even like different periods. And this becomes like a different, a different kind of film where it's not really the crow necessarily, but it's the idea of bringing people back who've been wronged um, and they're there to to right the wrongs. I think that would be great. I think if, um, you know, we cast anyone, um, there would be multiple casts playing um, or unless it's like, um, you know, uh, Hill House, uh, where they have the same characters playing different roles or American Horror Story playing different roles, mm -hmm. but pretty much the same cast. Um, I would love to see, and this is kind of touching on what Scylla mentioned about loving Hamilton. I love Hercules Mulligan. So I would love <laughs> to see o Oak in a role, in the key role of like playing um, and then writing wrongs. Um, or, and I think you mentioned him earlier, the character Killmonger. 
Michael B. Jordan would be so badass. Like I and I loved his character in Black Panther. Um, very much conflicted as to like where he fit in the story as far as like I kind of I kind of was on his side. Um <laughs> so, so um I would love to see him play this role of of an anti-hero where you're like, I I agree that what happened was wrong. I don't know if the means <laughs> Yeah, is appropriate, but justice is, you know, getting getting justice, just how that looks would be very, you know, and and fully being honest, if there were a crow reboot, I would see it. I just would. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. I mean, honestly, I'm, I'll see kind of anything that comes out because I'm just so desperate for movies. Um <laughs> uh, Jessica brings up the crow brings back one of the Oh, Jack the Ripper victims in Victorian England. See, like that would be so dope. Like there I would so watch the hell out of history. that. Right, right. Like just so many moments in history where we're like, ooh, that should have been, I, I can't believe they got away with it or, or, you know, whatever, like bringing people back to deal with that. Mm. Um, <laughs> Soft pitch. Just, Anthology series. Uh, each episode takes place during a particular different decade. Um, yeah. But there is a narrative through line because the crow is our consistent character. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Eh? Yeah. I like uh? it. I, the crow I'm occasionally sold. sings 90s songs, no matter what <laughs> decade it is. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why it reminds me of Doctor Who in the crow it put totally. together. <laughs> yeah. yeah, goth Which Doctor Who. The crow is goth just and Doctor Who. Yep. <laughs> The crow's sitting on a so branch. Alonzi! Alonzi! <laughs> He's wearing a fez. Oh, God. I love <laughs> a crow with a little a scarf. bow tie. <laughs> a doctor scarf. That would be so cute. There'd be so many angry people. <laughs> yeah. So it just got a lot less broody all of a sudden. He's like, why does that have a, yeah, why does he have a fez and a bow tie? <laughs> I, I will say, um, I, I do love. Um, I love the idea of this anthology, but like, um, I don't know if you guys know, I actually really like just the, the notion of a crow in particular, allowing a lost soul to come back um, mm -hmm. to, to right wrongs, because there are actually a lot of instances in real life in which crows or, or various types of corvids actually befriend people and they show their appreciation for like being fed or, or helped in some way by people. Uh, they show their appreciation by giving gifts. And so I actually think it's really appropriate that um, the creature in this story who gives, uh, who gives Eric this chance, uh, this chance to set things right, that's a gift given to him by a crow. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's, and, and like, we were talking about like this anthology would be so dope <laughs> and just to like present it as a gift um, is a pretty intriguing way to think about it. But yeah, I mean, I think, I guess we're all for it in various iterations, whether it's musical or anthology or something that doesn't involve museums. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think that's it. That's all I have. Awesome. Uh the, the only other thing about um, this movie that I want to bring up is I, I again, just want to point out how brilliant 
Brandon mm-hmm. Lee is um, yeah. because he has uh, an athletic background. Um, he brings a physicality to the role. And I don't just mean, um, I don't just mean in like the fight scenes or whatever, but like mm-hmm. even just when he's like perching on rooftops and everything like that, he has a very crow or bird like appearance. And yeah. I just think the physicality that he brought to this part was really unique and really, really special. So I just, yeah. Excellent, excellent all the way around. All the praise he got for this movie was very well deserved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he does something yeah. pretty. Um, he does something pretty interesting with his anger, and that is whenever he's showcasing his anger, there's a grief behind the anger. Like, which which I think would a lot of like, for example, Bruce Willis would not play it that way. Bruce Bruce Willis would just be angry, right? Like, mm-hmm. and anger without grief just feels like chaos. But when there's grief behind it, we actually side with him a little bit easier, right? It's easier mm-hmm. to kind of see like why it's easier for us to deal with the fact that he's throwing rings at the guy, right? Which it seems very sadistic, but we see that it's coming from a place of pain, not just like a, I'm going to make this guy's life miserable, right? And that just changes things. But he, I think a lot of actors would not have been able to handle that well. And I think he mm-hmm. does handle it well, which is cool. Yeah. Was that well, it? That's that's it for for me. But uh, one more comment from Jessica. She says she loves how much Megan knows about crows. <laughs> <laughs> Do not cross a crow. They recognize people's faces. They can live up to twenty years, and they do not forget. <laughs> oh, that sounds. Do horrible. not cross a crow. Terrifying. Yeah, that's really terrifying. Or if you do cross them, just make sure you take care of it, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> no, you should not do that. You should not do that. Anyways, make amends is what he means. <laughs> make amends is exactly what I mean. No revenge against crows. Right uh, the wrong. <laughs> that's exactly. Uh, well, that is it for today's show. Don't forget to subscribe to the Story Geeks podcast on YouTube or your preferred podcast provider. And make sure you check out Death of a Bounty Hunter, the book I co-wrote, and the new participatory arts podcast signal thanks for listening as always question everything and always seek the truth here's an exclusive clip of signal for more information visit sygnyl.com and then by the way i will be talking about um, our patreon supporters after we play this clip but tim go ahead and play the clip of signal You are listening to the sound of the signal. Here's what I need you to know. Do not become attached to the signal, for the signal belongs to no one. It is light whose position may change. The signal reveals a path, but it is not the destination. The signal is a finger pointing at the moon But it is not the moon. Be aware. Do not fall in love with my voice. I am a sentinel and a guide. But as of this moment, you and I are not yet friends. But trust me, you need to keep your wits about you. Hear these words. Three days from now, you will have an important revelation. Knowing this, there is something I need you to do for me.
the varied texts of Signal, which have been recovered over the ages, have at times been lost, found, translated, forged, or otherwise mishandled. Listener, discern. If you wish to tug upon this thread, then please do not go to signal.com. That is spelt S Y G N Y L. If you do go to signal.com, then do not follow the instructions provided. Well, that is super intriguing. I don't know if you're intrigued, but I am very intrigued. And as you could hear in the trailer, for more info, visit S-Y-G-N-Y-L.com, signal.com. And then I want to just throw a special uh, thanks to all of our monthly supporters. Here are some of the awesome supporters who support us through Patreon. Caleb Monroe, Zach Linton, The No Midnight Podcast, Sean R. Reed, Anthony Holder, Joshua Beckham, Brianna, Brianna, I should say. I Sorry, Brianna. I know I pronounced it wrong. Brianna. Bryce Cox, Young Money Savvy, Adam Vargas, Mary Baldwin, Wade Johnson, Jim Baldwin, Kimberly Lujeau, Monty Thigpen, Nick Prokop, and Connie Moe. Please consider supporting us, even if it's for only a couple dollars a month. Learn more at thestorygeeks.com. Megan, thank you so much for joining us again on the Story Geeks podcast. Thank you guys for having me. Of course. And Sandra, fantastic job with the questions. Loved loved you, you walking us through those. Those are great. And so it's always good to see you. So we'll say goodbye. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.